Before they do, let me introduce Don C. from Cleveland. I am Don the alcoholic. You know, if you can help me start this meeting as we do in Cleveland with the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Now the rest of the serenity prayer is living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardships as a pathway to peace, taking it as he did this sinful world that is not as I would have it, trusting that he will make all things right and I will surrender to his will. So I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with him forever and next. Amen. I'm Don Cassini and I'm an alcoholic from Cleveland, Ohio. We have a habit in Cleveland of telling you our sobriety date because if you don't have one, you haven't had one yet. Uh, but you know, my sobriety date is August 31st, 1961. And I would have to take a drink or any mind-altering drugs or anything from that day on. And if you're new here, please stay. You may just leave one day before the miracle happens. And the trick of that is you don't have to drink in between meetings or in between the serenity prayer and the Lord's prayer. And then if you stay sober one more day, you can come in for another serenity prayer. But you know, I, I'm, I'm grateful that I was very fortunate. I'm, uh, I'm Italian, and not too many Italians are in Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I actually was the first Italian that came in to A in Cleveland, because most of them are just drunks. They, they're not, they don't want to be alcoholics. But you know, I, I was unfortunate. You know, and to start, I was a good friend of Sister Ignatia, and you know, and I, when I come to Alcoholics Anonymous, we, I was very fortunate because there were 15 old-timers for every one or two new people. At that time, you had to be selected to come there. You had to be invited or you had to ask for help, not like today. Uh, it's a little different today. Today, they just say, come on down. We're an appendage of the penal institution now. And uh, I don't think it works that well. Anyhow, I, uh, I spent five years with Sister Ignatia, and I uh, came here... Very sick boy. And when I left, I went to Rosary Hall, I'll tell you that a little later, but I have something here that some of you may have never seen. And it's a thing with Sister Ignatius signed when you left Rosary Hall. And at that time, it was a six-day, five-day treatment, but I was up in the institute, upstairs in the intensive care unit for almost a month and a half. And when I left there, she signed this October 18, 1961. May God bless you and keep you forever close to the Sacred Heart, Sister Mary Ignatius. Please pray for me. And as when you left that hall, that Rosary Hall, after the time I served my time there, after being there for almost a month and a half, she put that thing in, she put my hand in her hand, and she said, Don, if you ever decide to drink again, please bring this back to me. And she gave me the scapula of the Sacred Heart. And up until today, I have not had a reason to bring it back to her, because if I bring it back, it's going to be in my coffin when I go and I'll meet her up there. So I believe that this has helped me through many, many hardships. I, uh, I, I say this before you start, if, if you're thinking you've got the problem with alcohol, uh, this is not the room for it. It's a problem with your character defects. We've got too many people thinking we're inventorying alcohol. alcohol. I never drank until I was 23 years old, and it's kind of drinking. I, uh, and December 7th, they started the war. I don't know if any of you are old enough to remember that. And uh, I never thought I'd be in the Army. I was 17 years old. And by the time I turned 18 the next in February, in March, I was in the United States Infantry. And I didn't think I belonged there. I found out I made a grave mistake when I joined up. <laughs> I had more discipline there than I had at home. And I uh, had a very brilliant and short-lived Army career. Not short-lived, it was long enough for me. Anyhow, but I had 15 summaries, two generals, was sent to the Federal Penitentiary in Leavenworth, Kansas, and given a dishonorable discharge. Now, this is a nice kid that only drank one time. And I really only drank one time. 
I was in Fort Leonard, Missouri, and I was going to town. At that time, there was a town called uh, Waynesboro, Missouri, and at that time, on a weekend, uh, they filled, it was about 300 population, maybe the people from Missouri know about it, and but on the weekend, you'd have all these ladies at night would come in, you know, and you'd take them to Joplin dancing or something. They were, they were just visiting for the weekend, make a little cash. And I found one that was from Georgia, and she talked kind of funny, and I talked kind of funny. We got along good. We went to dance, and, and when I went to buy whiskey, because I heard alcohol was a social lubricant, and he said, uh, I asked if they had any alcohol, and he said, no, the war's on, and alcohol went to war. So I said, what do you got to make a girl sexy? And he said, oh, Mr. Boston, creamy top, slow gin with the red. And it looked like wine. I said, give me two bottles. I know my dad could drink a bottle. So we start dancing. We dance differently than you kids do today. If you saw them out here last night, they were jumping around. The lights are flying. And, you know, some of these guys have been to dance five weekends in a row and they haven't touched the girl for the whole dance. <laughs> and and they're, they're just missing the boat, you know. And, you know, I, I when, when I was younger, we danced differently. We held the girl close and, you know, you dip them down a little bit. You ever watch the AMC movies? And just, just you know what you had in your arms. And then, and then you would take a sip on that old Mr. Boston and you'd dip them a little bit and they'd hang in there and you, oh, they hung tight. And you knew that, see? And we were sipping and dipping. Well, we kept sipping and dipping. And I, uh, I just had a problem. <laughs> she wasn't getting the program. I had it about 11.30 and she, we stopped to open the second bottle. Now I don't know what to do. I ain't getting her to give the program. So we, everybody had a leader in our neighborhood, an Italian neighborhood. Everybody had somebody who showed you how to smoke cigarettes, roll cigarettes, or, uh, or shoot crap. But they, they had, we all had sponsors at that time when we were young. <laughs> they taught you how to break in the gumball machines and steal the pennies. And we all had the little tricks that we learned. And uh, even like the little envelope, you put two cents in. I've got to tell you, I'm a, a young man in an old container. I'm 79 years old, so I, I've lived a while. And, uh, and I've stayed sober. I stayed here because I'm alive, because of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I want to thank all those who say. By the way, there's a girl in the audience that said, if I mention her name, she'll give me $10. And then if I say it enough times, we'll go to the boat. Pat, pat, pat. You got it now, Pat. <laughs> And in case I forget, I certainly want to thank everybody that, that had a part in bringing me here. I want to thank the people that I know from Louisville so well, a whole lot of them. And they took us to eat at Boca de Vipo. If you haven't been to Boca de Vipo, go there. Because the guys that own it are from Cleveland. <laughs> so we're going to help them out. But anyhow, we started dancing differently. And I remember this guy told me, Clem Bone was the name. He was the guy that told you everything. And he said, now when you go to the Aragon Ballroom and you're dancing and you want to get the girl sexy, blow in her ear. So I was sip, dipping, and blown, sip, dipping, and blown. And the next thing I woke up in Springfield, Missouri and didn't know how I got there. Went back and went to get paid that end of that month and they paid you in this paper bag with a little envelope with $21 a month is all we got. So you guys know, go to the Army today, you make it 1000 a month. Believe me, we got shot at for 21 <laughs> which is not a bargain. Anyhow, I... Uh, he said to me, he said, what are you going to do? He said, uh, I said, I want to find out why. So I was telling everybody, how come they took an allotment out of me? And the company commander said, Cassini, when we picked you up in Springfield that time, you got married that weekend. And I said, no, I didn't. He said, yes, you did. At that time, all you needed was a dog tag number. This is 1943. A dog tag number and the, my name and, and the thing. So I had no money when I got picked up and no dog tag. So uh, I had to agree with him. Then I went around telling everybody what happened to people. It was a couple hundred Italians from... My outfit, we were in Fort Leonard Wood, and I tell them, they'd laugh at me. I finally said, I saw a priest, and 
and he said, uh, well, I'll look into it. You know, it's, no, no offense to you delegates that are in the audience today, but sometimes these priests are like delegates. They're going to look into it and nothing really happens. <laughs> and, and three months later, sorry there, Bart's down, don't shoot me. But, but anyhow, what happened was four months later, we found out this girl, they found out who she was, and she was very patriotic. She married five or six guys that weekend. <laughs> and I never bothered to find out if I had a honeymoon or what. But, you know, I, I like to laugh in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I certainly hope you do, too, because if we can't laugh, we've got nothing going for us. And, there, and, in, and while I'm thinking of that, there's a gentleman here today that 17, 25 years ago I met him, and he was a big shot. And today he has three weeks, and I certainly hope he stays, believe me, because he's from Louisville now. And we were talking to him last night. And, you know, if I only help him, I've helped the whole group today. And for the benefit of those people who are not the present, the and they're going to buy the tapes is there's 2,000 people in this room. So if you come back next year, we'll fill this room up again. But some of them are still sleeping. <laughs> so, anyhow, so I, uh, I had that problem, and when it was all dissolved, resolved, uh, I, I just started getting, and I got in a lot of trouble. I had a lot of character defects. I, I didn't drink, but that one time, I thought I was drugged. And uh, I didn't drink at all. And I just kept on going. And one day I was on an infiltration course, and and we were running through this obstacle course, and I got hurt. And I hurt my knee very badly, and I could hardly walk for maybe a month. And then one day they took us on a force field march with a full field pack with rifles and bayonets attached. And, and I went about three miles, and my legs swelled up, and this company commander, uh, he watched me, and I fell off the side of the road. And when the pickup truck went by, someone pulled me up to the tailgate, and I got onto the truck, and I was riding. He seen me riding, he pulled me off, because he hated me by now, because I was always in trouble. And uh, I had an attitude, I really did. And uh, he pulled me down, and when he went down, I had my rifle stuck it over my shoulder, hit him with the butt of the rifle, and ran the bayonet through his shoulder blade. And that was instant court-martial. We didn't even have to go see the, the commander to put any of that stuff. It was done. And I went to the penitentiary, and I had two years with a dishonorable discharge. And when I got to that penitentiary, I found a lot of Italians there that didn't like discipline either. <laughs> and I, uh, I, I was... Uh, well, if you watch The Sopranos, I had relatives that were in this, sort of that same outfit, you know. <laughs> and, and for you young kids here that don't know what I'm talking about, I just want to tell you AA is like the mafia, because if you leave here, you're dead. There's no two ways about it. <laughs> I, uh, I, I just know that, you know. I, I think about the day I was in Atlanta one day, and we're driving along one of the back roads, going through Albany, outside of, I was Albany, Georgia, and there's a car weaving down the line, and this kid, Albany's a very small town. It's not that small, but it's a small town compared to Atlanta. And this car's right there, and the car's weaving, and the kid pulls up and wants to see what's happening. And he's talking to the sheriff who's standing by the car, and he said, what happened? And he knew the sheriff, and the sheriff said, well, this guy's been weaving down the road. And the guy said, well, what are you weaving for? The guy said, well, I said, I've been practicing my sermon. He said, and what happened? He said, and I got carried away with the sermon. He said, and I just didn't realize I was weaving the guy said, well, he said, I'll tell you what, just stop practicing your sermon, and when you get to your parish, wherever you're going, or your church, you start practicing there. So he said, fine. So he said, now go on and don't weave no more. And he's going to watch it for a while. So as he starts to go away, he said, just one minute. What's in that brown bag on the seat? He said, oh, he said, that's water in case my throat got parched while I was practicing. So the sheriff said, let me see the water. So he took the bag, he opened it up, and he said, my God, this is wine. And then the preacher says, my God, he's done it one more time. <laughs> You know, I, uh, 
You know, and for those who like to laugh, we'll cook with this one. Now, there's two boys playing in the backyard. They're about two and a half and four years, three years old, three and a half maybe. And they don't know any too much, but their father's building the doghouse. And the mother's upstairs shaking the rugs out. And the father hits his thumb with a hammer, and he starts swearing. And the mother says, oh, you're not going to church with me today. So he said, good, then there's breath. The kids could hear him. He said, I'll go fishing. So the kids figured, what the hell can they say to get them not to go to Sunday school with the mother? So they're thinking all night long. They stay up half of the night trying to figure a couple of swear words. So they come up with hell and ass. So they stand up half of the night making sentences out of hell and ass. Now, you know, they're that young. How do you make a sentence? They don't already know how. So all of a sudden, they get up the next morning. They're going to sit down and eat at 10 o'clock. They thought, but the mother got them up early. And they're sitting at the kitchen table, and the mother said to Johnny, she said, Johnny, what would you like for breakfast? And Johnny said, oh, hell, I have some oatmeal. With that, the mother beat the daylights out of him. She said, where'd you learn that? Said the poor kid looking. The other Timmy's looking. He's wondering what he's going to say now. And the mother said, Timmy, what you want? He says, you can bet your ass I don't want no oatmeal. <laughs> but you know, that's about as dirty as it's going to get. <laughs> but I, uh, I uh, drank not many years. I, I started the drinking, and after I got discharged, after well, I went to the army from the penitentiary. They said who would join the special forces and. He came back alive, he got an honorable discharge, and, and I put my hand up because I wanted one. My father wouldn't talk to me because he was ashamed of me. And I uh, I went and got special training down through Kentucky and went out to Arizona to the deserts out there. And uh, I was going to the South Pacific, and we were advanced scouts. And when we joined, they said, if your life, you come over there with 12 men in your squad and eight come back, that's a miracle. So, you know, the death rate was very high. But no one believes they're going to die. No one believes that. And I was in the war and I was young. I'm not going to die. And just like you go to a bar and you watch people at the bar and they drink and drink. And when I get that bad, I'll quit. Well, he, and he's always got somebody worse to see what's not going to happen. And I, I didn't think I'd get hurt or killed. So anyhow, we had this training. We finally went to the South Pacific. And after two major invasions, everything went pretty well. Not too many got killed. And we went into the island of Lady. And we went in there and it was mis some miscommunications and they were firing from the ship so they can clear the, the, into the island so they can get the Japs buried in there deeper and someone from our group was telling them where the Japs were firing in there, and our troops came in and they were landing and there hit shells coming from the Japs and shells coming from our shells and, and what happened a lot of people were killed and the water turned red with blood and I was in them going into a trench into those caves at that time and they were buried into the Japs and and we were going in with flamethrowers and grenades, you know, because I like this. I love grenades. They were better than bullets. They get do more damage. I love when they go boom, you know, and things fly. And you go into a cave, and my cousin Mikey was next to me, and he was there with a flamethrower. And I got that throw the grenade in the cave, and boom, and then my cousin Mikey's coming alongside with the flamethrower, and he steps on a landmine. He's killed instantly, and I was wounded very badly. My first words out of my mouth after not thinking of God for many years was, that I was hurt bad enough, and the corpsman said, you get going home, boy, you're never going to fight again. I said, thank you, God. That's the first time I ever thought of God, God in a long time. And when you're young, nobody really thinks about it, really. I went to parochial schools. I just thought it was something like a cosmic bellboy. Call upon him when you need him, you know. How many times when I was drinking, I said, God, if you get me out of this one, I won't drink again. Sometimes I quit three times in one day if I was good. But I, I just went on, and finally when I was sent back to Hawaii for surgery and then back to California to recuperate at Pasadena General Hospital, which was taken over by the Army at that time. And I fell in love with California. It was beautiful. You could smell the orange groves in Pasadena coming from 
And, and you know, it was just clean. I come from a smokestack city, you know. Cleveland was an industrial city at one time. And we had smokestacks. It was bad for the environment, but we had people working. Now we've got clean air and nobody's working, so we've got a problem. <laughs> you got an alternative. What do you want? And I, uh, I'd rather have a little smokestacks, I think. Anyhow, but then yeah, what's happening, and I'm getting well, and I'm starting to learn how to walk, and I'm going into Hollywood. And now I really fell in love. And there, the girls were nice, and I, I just got some menial jobs, because my father said, if you work for whatever you got, you'll appreciate it. I see these kids today, your father buys them a car, they smash it up, the father pays for the insurance, buys their license, pays for their gas, and they don't care. Smash it again. Anyhow, it was different in my time. So I, uh, I just was there in Hollywood, and I was walking around, I was with crutches, and I had a few ribbons on me, you know, and uh, we were treated well. And when I finally got discharged, I didn't come back to Cleveland. I stayed there. And I fell in love with it. And uh, the girls were pretty. I, I tell you, I, I fell in love with neons and nylons. So I tell you, that was good. <laughs> and I, I just loved them. And I, one day I'm waiting to go in a bar, the Billy Berg's on the corner of Hollywood and Barn, and meet a guy from New York City that was in, in the hospital with me. My Hank Martino, his father owns a green cab company in New York. And he don't show up. And I'm not drinking yet, so I walk into that bar... And I'm, I'm standing there, and I, I got to tell you, before the, before what that happened, they came out there to organize the studios. There was no unions in California, and when they came out to organize the studios, uh, the people came from Detroit, Buffalo, Chicago, Philadelphia, New York City, all around the country, and they were known as the Sopranos. You know, they they called them something else. Kefauver had a bad name for them, anyhow. But they were the members, and when the strike was over. I was an organizer. I watched the gate. When the strike was over, they asked you what kind of a job you want. So I would say, well, let me see. And one guy wanted to be a plumber, a carpenter, wanted to be who wanted to be a bricklayer, who the hell wanted to do this and that. And I didn't want no manual labor. I just avoided it. And uh, the guy said, what would you like to be? And this little swarty Italian about that high with a white hat and brown, banana yellow AAA shoes. And he's with thick shoulders, you know. And he said, what kind of a job do you want, the boy? And I said, uh, I think I want to be a hairdresser. He said, hey, kid, are you crazy? Them people are kind of funny. I said, oh, don't worry about it. I know all about it. And he looked at my cousin, Bad Eye, who was Mikey's brother. He said, Bad Eye, how about your cousin here? He said, he's nuts. Just leave him be. And I was nuts at that time. See, I was nuts when I was young, too. That's when my nickname was Crazy Doc. And how I so went and... He said, okay. So I went to work at 20th Century Fox. And this is... I'll catch up to Hank Martino in a bit. I forgot that. And when I went to work at 20th Century Fox, and Helen Hunt was the hair designer of the place at the time, and she took a liking to me, because I would go out, and I was a fun guy, and I liked to be around people, and I would take her down to 3rd and Lucas, which was Skid Row at that time. Now it's really Hell's Kitchen, and a bad place. And, and it was down there, it was all the guys around the land from all over the country, because you see, they had no reciprocity. If they wanted you in Cleveland, you come to California, if you didn't get in trouble, and they didn't put you in jail, they wouldn't pick you up and bother with you. So they were all out there, all these Italian guys. So I knew when I got there, they were all from Cleveland. From Cleveland. So I would take her down there in, in the what, Alvero Street and down there Union Station. And she loved it. She thought she was really getting some excitement out of that. It was a big thrill for her. And it was just a way of life for me. And she treated me well. And she taught me well. And she sent me to New York for advanced hairstyling. She taught me how to learn how to sculpture and mold because I had to do that at that time. Hair, hairdressing was an art at that time, if you see the old movies. And, you know, you shot, didn't shoot a movie in continuous thing. If you shot today and the next thing you want to was be three weeks later, you shoot the word they're coming out of the place because there'd be a scene in between and everything had to look identical the way. But it was an art, and she taught me. So 
So I started practicing. I started a chair long before I knew about giving it away to keep it. And I did, that was an ulterior motive, you know. But I, I, I just enjoyed it. And then one day after about nine months of that, she said to me, Don, she said, you're going to be doing a hairstyle for a movie called Centennial Summer. And uh, Linda Darnell and Jeannie Crane started in that movie. And I, I just, uh, the ego, that Italian ego went sky high. I was making more a week than my father made in a month. Now I'm really somebody. So I'm driving, I'm going down there and I'm out of the army. And I'm, one day I'm going to meet Hank Martino at that place, the swing club. And the, he don't show up. And these two girls walked into that door and I seen them go by. They looked nice. They had suntans. They had white dress suits, red suits on, the white you know, dress or whatever he comes. And they looked gorgeous and they smelled good. So I followed them in. And I sat next to them. Heard we could start talking. And when they went and sat down, they ordered the drink, and then they had two glasses come out. They were like rock glasses. I know they are now. I don't know what they were then. And they ordered the drink, and they drank them. Watched, they sipped on it. And I, she said, what do you want? I said, I'll have what they're drinking, just to get the conversation started. And what happened, I took that first drink, and I drank it with impunity. It wasn't like when I was in Joplin, Missouri with that broad. See, this, this didn't happen. Nothing happened. And I think Larry said it last night. We drink that first drink because it makes us feel comfortable. No one starts out taking a drink and chasing that for the next 45 years. I didn't do it. And I, I felt comfortable. And I didn't drink no more for a couple of weeks. And I went down to the Ambassador Hotel one night on a date. And I had another drink or two. And then before three months are up, I'm drinking pretty heavily. And I'm drinking pretty good now. But I'm not having any problems because I could wake up in the morning, shake it all up, and go to work. So I continued to drink. In 1940, end of 46, December 46, them same guys who got me into the studios asked me to set up a sting operation. If you saw the movie Sting with Paul Newman, that's exactly what happened. And what happened when I had to get the movie started to be stung, and when it was all over with the phony bullets and biting the blood, things, that everything was working to our behalf. Because the race, they didn't have no wire service, but they were calling it from the back room. The race could have been off two hours ago. And the guy lost all their money, and they start fighting, and people start shooting and I finally got there those guys my cousin Brad grabbed me says get out of here and I'll get you out of here and tell them guys to get to Lake Tahoe and stay there until they get a message to come back and that's what happened and I got down to the Union Station that night and came back to Cleveland when I got to Cleveland I didn't like it because I had authority here and when I got back home I just decided to stay a couple of weeks and I went on to New York City and I was just telling Bill that my uncle owned the tavern on the green the Piccadilly Circus Bar and the theater bar and grill on Times Square and he was a, he spoke a book in English and he had all this money. And I didn't know how he got it. I know later why he got it. He was a member of that same outfit, you know. And, uh, but he treated me good, but then he found out I was drinking all day long for free and I couldn't get a job. I didn't have a union card there. And he said to me, you're either going to start getting a job or I'm going to call your father. Tell him to have you come home. And I said, don't call my father. He, he'd get mad. And my father was kind of a guy. He was not, uh, you know, if there was anything about, you know, today a kid comes out, he's got on his forehead stamp. It's 800, abuse. Call it, call it. Put your father in jail. See, my father, he beat the hell out of you. He'd say, how come you're beating me more than the other ones? He'd say, because I love you more. And I'd say, I said, Dad, I don't want that kind of love, you know. Anyhow, so anyhow, he said to me, get a job. So finally I went up and I, I got a job with uh, uh, Helena Rubenstein. And she said, get a passport. And she said, do you want to... Yeah, do you like to travel? I said, yes, I'm in California because I have a respiratory disease. And that would have been if I got picked up there, I'd have been doing some time. And I didn't go back until San Diego conference. <laughs> that, was like, that was a long time passing between. <laughs> Anyhow, I, uh, I went to New York City, but I started a diff 
think differently when I was on those cruise ships. You know, these were the big ocean going liners, not like the caribou lines. And these things were mammoth. And I started drinking every two and a half to three hours, four to six ounces of vodka. And I worked as a hairdresser. Now, if you've got a wife and she wants to go on a cruise because she's having a problem with your marriage, watch what you do. Make sure there's no little Italian hairdresser behind that chair because you can wind up in trouble because I started to drink. Now, here's something you don't hear about today. I had shame and guilt, and this is what takes you into Alcoholics Anonymous. It'll take you in or take you out. Your conscience will bring you here and it will take you out. Self-respect is lost and dignity is lost, and when that starts to happen, we're in trouble. Sister Ignatia was big on that, big on that, you know. And we know when we're doing wrong because our conscience lets us know it. And we know when we're doing right because our conscience will let us reward ourselves and make we feel good. And I started fooling around with married women on that ship, and I don't know how that happened. And they were lonesome, and I was going to help them. And then I, I then it started to bother me because, you know, they were married, and I was raised Catholic. Adultery was a sin. And then I could rationalize it, you know. You know, you're good at rationalizing. And I'd say, well, she's married. I'm single. It don't count. How's that? <laughs> And then what happened, then it got worse, and I'd drink some more in the morning to forget about it. And then at night you start over again, the same routine, you're drinking more. And when we landed in England, the guy said, go see the Big Ben. Who the hell wants to see a big clock go boom, run on me? I want to know what we can drink. And then when I get in there, that attitude, that cocky attitude, I hate them because my father hated them from World War II, one. And I, I didn't like him. I said, when are you going to pay your word debt? And that's all. I'd open my mouth like that, and I'm going out the door. Bada bang. And the Bobbies would take me back to the ship. They saved my life many times. Then I got in trouble in England. I didn't like them. When I got to France, I didn't like France. If there's any French girls here, please forgive me. But over there, they had long hair under their arms. They could have braided it. They didn't shave their legs. <laughs> and I hell with them. And I got in trouble there, too. You see, my mouth always got me in trouble. And I, I just kept on going. And when I got to Italy and they didn't like me there, I figured there's something wrong with these Italians. They don't know I'm an American, Italian-American. Well, anyhow, on December 22nd or 3rd, no, December 20th or something, just before that, I came back to America on a ship. And I left New York City and I left everything in the hotel there where I was staying. I figured I'd go back. But I didn't. I stayed and came to Cleveland and stayed. And when I got here, because I knew, and everybody in this room was a real drinker, knows that there's a problem long before you come to AA. You just don't wake up one morning and say, I think I got a drinking problem. Or you who have DWIs and your wife's divorced you, uh, you just take a DWI. The problem with you is that you don't know how to drive. You go to AAA. That's where you go to get learn how to drive. And if your wife has left you, just remember, she possibly did you a favor. She didn't leave you because you got drunk one time. She left you because you've been a miserable drunk for many years. <laughs> and drunks aren't nice people. And I didn't, I was single at that time, so I didn't give a damn. But when I got back to Cleveland, figured my mother could help me stay sober. And everybody thinks their Italian mother could help me stay sober. And my mother really tried, you know. And uh, first of all, she told me I was drinking too much. She had a woman from Pittsburgh, Helen, uh, Catherine Coleman. She was a healer, you know, one of them healers. And, and she used to have broadcast on the radio. There's a little boy in Cleveland drinking too much. Let's pray for him. I said, Ma, why do you write to that lady and send her a dollar? Pray for me. And then she would say, she's, well, I'll take you there. So she took me to the Keeley Cure. Some of you people never heard of that. It's an adversion theory. It was in Buffalo. $250. You drink all you want. The one kind of whiskey, and they give you a pill so you could puke at night. And you wouldn't drink that whiskey no more. And then you did that for seven days. When I got out of there, I knew I wasn't getting the pill, so I needed a drink. 
and it was raining. So my, they were, they came with my brother-in-law and they came to pick me up. So I said, I'll go get the car. And I went and took a drink so I can get back to Cleveland. Then she tried Rex Humbart, who was building that big cathedral in Akron. And then I went there and I got dipped and bopped. Nothing happened. Didn't get sober one bit. And then she took me to, I went to the stadium in Cleveland and, 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 uh, Billy Graham was there, 90-some thousand people in the Cleveland Stadium. And it was a big stadium, and it was packed. And I made it from the third tier down. I walked all the way down because my mother wanted me to get killed by Billy Graham. And I wasn't about to get healed. If you're here and you're here under due rest, you're not going to get well. They could dip you and bop you for the next four months. You're not going to get well. And Billy Graham said, go up there and talk to that man after he gets one of these numbers on me, you know. And he'll take your name and address and telephone number and he'll contact you. And he was going to be my sponsor. And uh, I gave him a phony name and a phony telephone number and went on my way. He never called me. I don't know why. It's like the guy says, give me your phone number. I want to talk to you. He never heard from him for another four months. Six months. If he's drunk, he'll call you maybe. Anyhow, I didn't get cured with Billy Graham. I got dipped and bopped there. Then there was one other guy, and I don't know if you get him in Louisville. His name is Ernest Angelie. And he just had a storefront at that time. And his, my mother took me there. She was bound to determine someone's going to cure me, heal me. And then we went there, and I looked at the guy, and I said, Mom, how can this guy help me? He's got such a bad wig on, he can't even grow hair. <laughs> and, you know, he dipped and bopped me again, and nothing happened. So what happens, I'm having a tough time with this deal, and I don't know what to do, but I keep on drinking. So I started working at a brand-new store downtown Cleveland, the Barnwood Teller Department store. I was the manager of the beauty salon for the woman, and... Uh, I was not getting anywhere with this beat, dipping and bopping, you know. So I started drinking heavily now, and I'm drinking pretty good. And I'm working every day. i got 25 girls working for me, and I'm the boss, and I'm drinking in a bar downstairs. And one day the bartender sent me down, he said, you're going to have a problem with your life. You know, you're building a new beauty salon. He said, you're going to get in some trouble. You're going to blow everything. I said, Augie, I'm going to do something about this drinking. He said, well, let me know when you're going to do something and what it is. So about a week and a half later, I said, Augie, I want to tell you, I got a, gonna, got a plan. Every alcoholic has a plan how to get sober, you know. And I said, I'm going to marry that model from across the street. And she was a beautiful Italian girl. As a matter of fact, Bernadette looked a little bit like her. <laughs> when she, the same features. And, and you know, he said to me, if that works, I got a lot of guys I want to recommend them to get married to. Well, we got married, and I want to tell you, she married me because that was exciting. And we opened up our first beauty salon. We made nothing but money. And 14 months later, she wanted a divorce because the excitement was killing her. So I said, go ahead. I can drink the way I want. She said, you know, you're a drunk. I never made you a drunk. And she said, I'll take that divorce and I'll see you later. Well, I haven't seen her since we got divorced. I've heard about her. She lives a couple blocks away, but she avoids me and I don't want to see her. But, you know, it's just something. I tried to make an amends to her and she didn't want to hear about it. So then I'm drinking on my merry way. I'm arguing with the priest from the Catholic Church, telling him to meet me in the middle of the street. We'll fight. And he's, he could punch me right through the ground, you know. And he didn't come. But, you know, it was just getting progressively worse. I'm drinking more and more. Now the shop is open. We're making money. And now I signed two more leases. And I, I really fighting to get money. You had to borrow money from the bank. By that time, I had pretty good credit. And I would borrow that money. But, you know, you got to fight to cape up and make the payments. And it was just more drinking, just to keep ahead of the pressures. And then my mate, an Irish girl. Well, before that happened, my uncle saw me in 1953, and he said to me, Doc, he says, you're drinking too much. I says, Uncle Tommy, I know what those drunks look like from the railroad. They drink that orange pop, and they drink paint thinner. 
And he said, well, if you ever want any help, let me know. Now, for you people who've been here, you've been given the benefit of the doubt how you got here with these gift certificates that they give you. Let me tell you, my Uncle Tommy came into Alcoholics Anonymous in 1941. Never once told me about Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, if you don't take this thing as a jewel and hold it in your hand and polish it for the rest of your life, you're a fool. You're absolutely a fool. Because they wouldn't tell you about it because they fought hard for Alcoholics Anonymous. They worked hard and they would drive from Cleveland to Akron in 34, 35, 40 and all broken down automobiles to get this program. And here you got it, you can fall into six meetings. In Cleveland you can fall into six meetings, roll into them without any help. And they've been giving you the opportunity. Some judge sends you to A because he knows something is wrong with you. Only you don't know that. You see, they're keeping that a secret from you. So when you... When you come to these meetings, you throw your paper on the desk and you walk away and you scowl, son of a bitch. Why I gotta be here? I'd show that guy. So you get the paper, you go right back out and have a few drinks. What the hell? I don't blame you. I would too if I hated this program as much as you did when you come around paper. Every once in a while, someone will get through, slip through and get sober. Every so often. But he will not get sober through osmosis. And my uncle knew I would screw this thing up and if you didn't ask for it, we could get it. That was the only way you can get it sober at that time. Ask somebody for help. Or they invited you like Bill went to Bob. And, and they invited you to come. And my, my uncle invited me to come, but he didn't mention Alcoholics Anonymous because I had not heard that word yet. So he walked away from me. Then I found an Irish girl that I wanted to marry. And she uh, was a nice, pretty girl. She was a model, too. And uh, she, uh, I took her out to dinner a couple of times. She didn't drink, but I drank a couple of glasses of shots of whiskey. And uh, I figured, well, I'll take her home at 10 o'clock and I'll go out and finish the night out. And I did that for about four months. And then one day we decided to run away and get married. And I don't want to meet her family because inwardly I knew I didn't deserve that pretty girl and that nice girl. Everybody knows we don't deserve something. We think we do. And when you're drinking enough, you just realize you got something wrong. And uh, that's where I was at that stage. And I started to puke in the morning. I had diarrhea an awful times. A lot of times I made, had to make a split decision, never made the right one. And, you know, it just was getting bad. In the meantime, we got three shops going now, and I went to meet my father-in-law after we got married, and he's a tall, thin man, bent over like me now with gray hair. And he said, kid, he said, you're drinking too much. And I had an answer for him. I said, go see my Uncle Tommy in Collinwood. Uh, you know, this is 1954, 354. And he said, oh, I said, you can join your own Holy Roller Church with him. That's what I thought they were, Holy Rollers. Well, my father-in-law came in through in Alcoholics Anonymous in 1940 in New York City. And he never told me about Alcoholics Anonymous. He just said, if you want any help, I'll help you. And at that time, everybody knew everybody in the Cleveland area because they were small. I think at that time they had 42 groups going, maybe the most. And they knew everybody. And he just walked away from me because he knew this thing was a jewel. And if you don't take this thing and polish that jewel every day, in today's 24-hour book, I don't know how many you read it, it talks that anything you have today, you won't because of your sobriety. And if it don't bleed, you really don't need it. The only thing you lose is you lose that, you can always get it back. But if you lose your sobriety, it's difficult. It's difficult. Anyhow, he walked away from me, but he planted the seed in January 1st, 1956. I quit drinking cold turkey. On January 7th, I was in the mental hospital, mentally insane. My wife wouldn't call her husband, father, until I was drunk. 
And my sister wouldn't call my uncle and tell her that her brother was a drunk. They were too proud. Anyhow, I went to the mental hospital. They took me there in an ambulance. They strapped me down and fed me peraldehyde, and I was in straps for eight days. And they kept giving you peraldehyde. Now, you guys deserve that treat. If they brought peraldehyde back, some of you guys wouldn't drink. <laughs> you know that? You might quit. They don't give me that Prozac. <laughs> Valium. You know, we didn't have those things then. And then you get drink so much Valium, you have Valium deficiency. And then they got some psychiatrist to provide something else for you. It's Vicodin. And some sleeping pills. Make it comfortable. Don't let the poor drunks hurt. They're so sensitive if you tell them something about that. <laughs> Anyhow, I, uh, I, 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 they asked me to get out of the straps if I behaved. And they said, go upstairs and take therapy. And I went upstairs and we were saying, the old lady requested songs. She volunteered. God bless her. And they said, the more songs you request, the quicker you get out of here. So I requested all the songs. Johnny, get your gun over there. World War One songs, World War Two. And I got out, and they gave me a bottle of milk town, which was the wonder drug at the time. And the doctor said, now, if you get nervous with your wife and you're working too hard, take a pill. Now, I didn't know he said take one pill every four hours. I thought it was four pills every one hour. <laughs> and for two days, I took four pills every one hour. And by the time on his third day, I'm sitting at a railroad crossing. There was no arms that went down at that time. And I'm sitting with that Cadillac and drive. And the car's creeping up, and the train's going by, and the whole front end starts to shake. Man, I threw that car in reverse. Went to my mother's house and called that psychiatrist. I said, Doctor, you think I can have a little wine with my spaghetti? Because I can't go down without a little wine. He said, Oh, yeah, you can have one glass of wine, but just with your spaghetti. I took that one glass, and you have to drink to settle you down. And I had to do a TV show, so I had to drink to settle down. Now, you couldn't have an open container, so what happened? I had a Cadillac with a big gallon glass bottle in the, in underneath the hood, where, you, where the windshield water came out of. See? I filled that up with vodka. And I, my wife had a bag with a long hose on it. I hung it from the bathroom, you know, some of you girls might know. And I cut the hose off and I ran it through the firewall, hooked it up underneath the dash, filled that jar up with vodka, and I could go to the tea. And I'm going to, it's got the top down. If I'm driving downtown Cleveland, I need a drink and the compulsion sets in, stick the hose in my mouth, press the windshield washer buttons, and wait to go back and forth. And I get two, if I push it twice, I get four shots, shots of vodka, you know. And if, if you see a guy going down, What's his name? Bardstone Boulevard. <laughs> Whatever the street is, Bardstone Bar Bar is it? Yeah. And if you see a guy with a hose in his mouth, follow him because he's hurting me at this conference, so he bought the tape. And if they're still drinking, buy the tape for him, so maybe they'll try it. Anyhow, that's what I wound up as. And, and I went, for, when I got out of that at mental hospital, I just didn't, I just didn't nothing. I just kept on drinking, signing more leases. I built a total of eight beauty salons. And employed a hundred, and had a school downtown Cleveland, hair design school. And I was a functional alcoholic. I worked every day and drank every two and a half to three hours just to keep going. And at night I would go out and take my, go home and have a closer shop and I'd go home and, and I'd get dressed up and go out because I was the master of the house. She had three children and never fed them, never clothed them, never bathed them, never did nothing. And for that I'm sorry today, but I couldn't help. I was drunk. And what happened? I kept on going. And and those three children were born, and my wife starts not liking me more, and I sought lower companions, which was not hard to do when you got money seeking any spires. I used to go to the lounges. There were lounges, neon lights, you know, nice bar music, trios playing in the background. And then it got late at night, and I'd go down the back to my old Italian neighborhood, go to all those Italians were drinking there. And, you know, I'd tell these guys about my wife's, and they, they'd say, get rid of that bitch. If I was married to a girl like her, I'd be rid of it. You know, it's 40 years later, some of these guys I've seen with Italian doings, and 
They still got the same wives. I can't understand why they didn't get rid of them. I've had four wives, you know. I, I practiced getting married. And uh, so anyhow, my wife is getting mad and everything is going wrong. And, and I'm Satan with all her companions. And, and I'm having a good time, I thought. And I'd be puking and sometimes I'd go home late at night and I'd be drinking beer. So I'd take a cold bottle of beer to keep my stomach settled. And all of a sudden, if you're, if you're really a good puker, you can lay down in bed and puke straight up in the air. And it'll come right down. And then that woman you're married to just hates you. She's got to clean it up, you know. And I don't understand why she does. She cleans the baby's diapers. What's so different about that? <laughs> See, rationalization is like masturbation. You only want to get screwed in the end of yourself. <laughs> but anyhow, it's, uh, it's getting worse, you know. And my, uh, my wife is not happy. And I don't know why, but you know, I got so bad that one day a guy walked into my beauty salon and this guy was a big road builder, an Italian guy, good looking guy, black, rusty, rusty, reddish hair, wavy hair, big guy, built all the interstates, the New York on Interstate 90, built part of the turnpike and built all the big roads going west to Cleveland. And uh, he was a wealthy boy and he came to my beauty salon and I didn't like him because he, I hadn't seen him in a couple of years. And, and he said to me, Doc, he says, come on, I want to talk to you. And he took me to a bar across the street, and it was just opening up, it was about nine in the morning, and I drank six Benedictine brandies in two hours because my stomach had to get settled, and he drank six cups of that old coffee from the night before. And he told me a story, and I said, Ted, what's happened to me? you? I don't understand. He said, why are you talking to me about that? He said, Doc, he said, if you walk like a duck and you quack like a duck, he said, I've watched you. You're an alcoholic. And I said, Ted, you're nuts. You've been talking to my wife. He said, no, I haven't. He said, I joined Alcoholics Anonymous. That is the first time I heard that word, Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, I said, what do you want from me? He says, come to a meeting with me tonight. Call your wife. Tell her to go with me. I'll call her. And he said, we'll go. So I went to my first meeting, <clears throat> and he took me to a land meeting where I was, should be there because I lived in a wealthy neighborhood at a big home. And uh, he said, if you don't like it, bring your own car. Of course, I was going to bring my own car. I had vodka in the windshield washer. <laughs> And he said, bring your wife, and if you don't like it, there's three doors in the back of this big room in this church. He said, if you don't like it, just get up and leave, and don't make a scene, just walk out. He said, because we don't need you, you need us. I mean, I didn't like him. <laughs> and I still tell people, I sponsor a lot of people today, and I do sponsor a lot of people, the people that come to see me in Cleveland, a lot of these people here know that. And I tell them, if you don't want it, just keep on drinking. And I'll give you some bit of news that you may not know, but it's in the big book. But if you don't want to get well, don't open that big book. Just leave it lay there, because it just may rub off. It may open up to a page you like. <laughs> and it says, nowhere in the big book does it say, do not drink. i tell you the page I know by heart. It says page 31. If you don't convince, you're not convinced you're an alcoholic, drink some more. You'll have a few more debuffs, and maybe it'll convince you. Read that page. So if you want to tell your sponsor off, say, hey, that guy said he c I could drink on page 31. <laughs> but you know, when I went to that meeting, and I heard a word a woman meeting, she was a woman wrestler, and I, I liked her, but she was pretty good at the beginning, but then I got the compulsion to drink, and I went out to the car, and I started the engine, put the hose in my mouth, got a couple hot shots of vodka. I thought it was like the two years in New York, you get an admission, you know? But she kept on talking. When I come back, she was building birdhouses. No way that I want to hear about birdhouses, so I left. And when I left, the guy grabbed me outside. These guys would have maybe 54, 64 years of sobriety now. 
They were old timers, the original bunch that came in. They said, what's the problem? I said, I can't stand that alcoholic wife. They told me the first lie I was ever told in AA. They said, keep coming back, she'll get better. Now that, that was a big lie. It's 42 years almost now and she hasn't got better. Anyhow, I, uh, I just kept on going. And one day I woke up totally yellow. I played golf with a doctor the day before and I asked him for my... I heard about, I went to three meetings with this guy. I heard about Sister Ignatius gives you all you want to drink. I heard that if you wanted by somebody, the police or something, they'd put a guard by your door so you couldn't get out until you finished your six days and five nights. And if you could get liver trouble. I heard those things when I was counting seeding thousand floor tiles. And when I, he, I said, I woke up that morning, I'm totally yellow, I'm blown up, I'm like from the baton march. And I get to the hospital, and when I get to the hospital, doctor's office, he said, you gotta go to the AA. I got to go to the hospital. You got to liver trouble. I said I can't do it. I got to make paychecks out. He said if you won't be able next week to make a mark, you'll be dead. Nobody believes him. She said I'm going to fill a prescription out, and when I come back, I want an answer from you. He went in there to fill the prescription out for a patient. He came back. He said, What are you going to do now? And I said I've got a sponsor. Now I heard that word while I was sitting in that meeting, counting four thousand ceiling tiles. I had no intention of getting sober. And they took me, and he said, call your sponsor. I called my sponsor, and somewhere along the way, my sponsor got picked up. Now, at that time, there was no cell phones. He was putting the interstate off at Dunkirk, New York, which is a long ways. If I drive to Dunkirk now on Route 90, I'd take two and a half hours to get there. And he drove in from Dunkirk, New York, because he got the call from me. He talked to the doctor, and he told the doctor he'd call him back. Sister Ignatius said she'd take me in. She'd wait for me. And when he drove in from Dunkirk, New York, and I want to tell you one thing about Sister Ignatius said, when you're sponsoring somebody, you are charged with their life. If you don't know what you're talking about, just leave them be, give them to someone else. And my sponsor drove in from Dunkirk, New York, and got me to Rosary Hall at 11.15 at night. And Sister Ignatius was waiting for me. And when she looked at me, she said, young man, she said, you'll never make the night. I'm going to call Father Winchester in. They gave me last rites and I went into a coma and had an out-of-body experience. But when I come out of that out-of-body experience in the intensive care unit, my wife was standing there. They told me I wasn't going to live. And she had all the old-timers, the giants of alcoholics and honest, who were somewhere there, 100, 100, 125 of the original members were still alive in Cleveland. And they would stand there and they'd pray to rosary every day at 3 o'clock for me. And then they'd sit there at night and come and talk to me. And, you know, I didn't want to be sober. I hated that when I come out of that tunnel, I wanted to die. I hated Sister Ignatius. I hated Dr. Percham. I hated everybody because I didn't want to come back to this world no more. And my wife made me sign the power of attorney because I was touch and go. And she got everything. Eight beauty salons, a school, and cars, and the kids. And all of a sudden, she stopped coming. <laughs> and I, I, you got the answer, huh? Don't sign those papers. <laughs> you know, it's ironic. My sister said, you know, you're traveling all the time. I've been at seven conferences since the 1st of January. And I, she said, if you die out of town, I can't get your body back because I'm not, the, I'm only your sister. So I had to go make out a, uh, some kind of a power of attorney or whatever you call it for the other day before I left here. So I don't, she's praying for me. I get back. I'm sure of that. But you know, and I stayed there and she didn't come back no more to see me. And I would be there and these giants would come down and one day Sister Ignatius had me out of intensive care units and I was talking to these guys and they'd come in and they'd wheel me down in a, wheelchair to say the rosary every day at three o'clock. I didn't know the Our Fathers, I didn't know the Hail Marys, I forgot all of that. And when I went down there, these guys would say their rosary and I, I would mimic them, you know, I just blah, 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 move my lips, you know, like some people say the serenity prayer now. 
you know, they don't know what they're talking about, they don't mean nothing to them. And I say the Lord's Prayer, you just say rote. And the Lord's Prayer says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, amen. Pay attention when they say that prayer. And I'll tell you one thing, the Lord's Prayer starts with our Father, not whose Father, and it ends with amen, not a chant at the end. They're chanting everything now. We've got more chats than trying to come rise. <laughs> Chant for 15 minutes on the West Coast. Some people stand up and dance. <laughs> but you know, it was just... And all of a sudden, they start... And a guy went down, he said to me one day, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. He was a skid row bum, come out of Kingsbury Run with it, had all the murders. And I didn't know who he was. Then one day, another guy wheeled me down. His name was Clarence Snyder, the broommeister. He said, kid, this is a celebration when you come to Alcoholics Anonymous. Enjoy it. It's like having a pound cake with frosting on top, whipped cream and cherry on top of that. And a couple of days later, he came by my room and he said, when you leave here, they're going to give you a prescription. Fill a prescription now. Don't wait. And I didn't know what he was talking about. I thought he was goofy. Anyhow, these giants from Alcoholics Anonymous came there every day and talked to me. And one day, Sister Ignatia walked into my room. She said, Don, you can go out of here and finish off your drunk because your attitude stinks. That will not happen today as long as you have Blue Cross. They don't ever throw you out. You're still staying in that potential case, you understand? You're a potential alcoholic. And she said, you can go out here and finish off your drunk and I'll allow you to come back because you're only in Rosary Hall for not even 15 or 20 minutes before we put you in intensive care. She said, you make up your mind and tell me in the morning. And as she turned around, I said, I'll show you a little penguin. And she said, what'd you say? I said, I'll talk to you in the morning, sister. <laughs> I went down and did that six days and five nights and never took a drink again. And when I left there, I had no home to go to. I had to be out of the house by January 1st. And my sponsor came off the road. He was building. His brother went out to Dunkirk to finish that project. And he stayed home and took care of the asphalt plant and everything here. And he took me to meetings every night. And my co-sponsor was a judge's son. And five months into my sobriety, my co-sponsor committed suicide. Because his periods of sobriety were shorter than his periods of drinking. He just couldn't stay sober. And my sponsor who saved my life carried the message to me. Ted has been in hospitalized over 27 times in these jitter joints and that's just drying out. He's never made it. He's over 80 years old now. And you know, he's still living life on the installment plan. And that's a hell of a way to live. I said to him one time, Ted, you know you can die. He said, dying is easy. What I'm doing is the hardest thing to do, live life on drinking and not drinking, drinking and not drinking. And if you've ever tried it, think about it. Anyhow, he, I got a new sponsor and some of these people here in Kentucky knew him. He, uh, we'd come down here to Gethsemane, the Trappist Monastery. He brought me down here in 1962. And when I got in there, I hated him. I didn't want to be in a goddamn monastery. And, you know, and uh, they don't talk there. There's no newspapers. Everything is quiet. And I went down with these guys and, and I hated it. Oh, did I hate it. They they talk about stopping on... on on uh, what the hell is that big street in Cincinnati where they got all the chili joints? Oh, they were going to have Skyline chili. Oh, God, you guys are sick. And I didn't want to be there. So when I get to Gethsemane, we got there about 10 in the morning, 9.30 in the morning. We drove all night. And I uh, I look around, and there's a priest sitting over there. And I hear the monks there. Nobody's talking or doing the chanting in the room. And I, uh, what am I doing here? So this little priest called me over there, and his name was Father John Doe. Better known to some of you people may have heard of him because you're close to there. His name was Father Ralph Fall, who wrote the Golden Books and Sobriety Without End and and and, uh, and Sobriety Beyond. And he looked at me and he said, "Kid, I understand you're not happy here." And he said, "He said, what's the problem?" I said, "Hey, if God took everything away from you, you'd hate him too." 
And he looked at me and he stood up and he said, let me tell you something, young man. I was young then, I had black hair too, so don't forget. And he said, let me tell you, young man, he said, I'm going to tell you, God never took nothing away from you. You sacrificed everything you lost on the altar of alcohol. He said, remember, you were the one that did it, and I didn't like him then. He said, do you have a power? I said, yeah, I talk about him, talk about God and trees and white poles. He said, if you were God, would you want the dog to urinate on you? I couldn't answer him. And he said, did you ever, were you powerless? Your life unmanageable. I said, kind of. He said, yeah, I ate beauty salons at school. Then he went through the whole litany, and I knew my sponsor told him. My sponsor just passed away in November with 53 years of sobriety. I spent 41 years and some months with him, and he was my sponsor. I never had the opportunity to fire him. Because when we went to Gethsemane, he weighed 347 pounds that time. <laughs> he was big. Anyhow, but then he said, now that second step, he said, you could be restored to sanity. And I said, wait a minute, I got papers from that nut house to see I'm sane. He said, that's not what I'm talking about. He said, I'm talking about, if you go back to drink today, you're nuts. So if there's anybody new here and you think you're going to do it again, you're nuts. Just remember what I'm talking about. You are nuts. That's what he said, you're nuts. That's total insanity, asking for the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. And he made it very simple for me. And he said that third step, he said, you turn your life and you will over to the care of God as you understood him. With the faith of a mustard seed or the faith of a child. And I remember my kids were small, they'd sit on the table, and I'd walk by and they'd jump out, and they figured I was going to catch them, and I did, because they thought I was God. You know, and Sister Ignatius said, with the faith of a mustard seed or the faith of a child, we've got to become childlike before this thing starts to work. And I said, fine. So he said, now write an inventory. And he showed me how to do it in the book. And I wrote down all these things, and I said, I put things down that didn't mean much to me, and finally I said, I got it all done. The next morning he said, good. He said, now take it to somebody and give it away. See, that fifth step, you give it to God for forgiveness. You give it to yourself for understanding. And you talk eyeball to eyeball to another person for humility. No one likes to talk eyeball to eyeball and tell exact natures of our wrong. And I'm sure in any room you speak in today, any room I go throughout the country, there are people somebody holding something in their stomach that they never took out in their inventory that they want to take to their grave with them. Take it out now. That's what Father Fall told me. Take it out now. If you're going to carry it with you, it's going to fester. It's like garbage. It starts to fester. And one day you'll drink again. You've got to be completely void of all those things. And he said, you're a load of character defects. He write down, he said, he said, write down your fears, your sex, and your resentments. And I had a lot of resentments. Oh, God, I hated everybody. Starting with my wife. I had her on three lines. <laughs> And he just said, then tell the son. So I found a monk there at the monastery, and he took my, he listened to me. And he didn't move too much, this guy. I heard he used to go over the hill once in a while, drink a little. And he didn't move, he didn't make no more. So I said things that never even happened, just to see if he'd smile. But he didn't. Later, six years later, that guy left the monastery and became spiritual director of Rosary Hall. But you know, I spent five good years with Sister Ignatia. And my sponsor took me to meetings every night, my new sponsor. We traveled. You like to travel. I talk about people who are in our area, they got zip code sobriety. They go to the same five meetings and don't move from them. Same five meetings, don't move. Don't dare come to a conference because they don't think it's worth it. Don't do anything. Don't go to an anniversary. It's not worth it. Don't do this. Don't do that. Well, stay there. That's all you want. This is a drug place. This is a place to come for happiness. If you're not happy, you better find out why. 
And the problem you're not happy is probably you're not putting these steps into your life. And that's what he made me do. He said step six and seven after I gave that monk my inventory is the two easiest steps, the shortest steps in the book. And the most difficult. Step six, think about this, you young people. You stop doing the things you like to do. Step seven, you start doing the things you don't want to do. Get a sponsor, become committed to a home group, do these things that are expected of you. He said, do that. So it worked. He said, make amends. And I've gone through it all up in there 41 years. But let me tell you, my years in life in Alcoholics and Anonymous have been wonderful. I've had ups and downs. I've had two heart attacks, a stroke, open heart surgery. I had a wife I got married to in 1971. She was a member of AA for nine years. And she went to see a psychiatrist one day. And the psychiatrist told her that she was having nervous problems with kind of her daughter and gave her some pills. And within two weeks, she was insisting on paragoric again. Some of you girls may remember paragoric. Direct derivative of opium. And within two years, she was dead, drunk. I watched her die. There's no guarantee there's going to be a handle on that door when you try to grab it the next time. Maybe God is not going to be that merciful. He will allow you the moment of clarity that you want to get sober. He tells you the idea about it. But if you don't act upon these ideas, God's not going to do nothing for you. He will work with you, but not for you. He is not your employer. If you don't help him, willingness without action is a fantasy. Take that to the bank. Willingness without action. I'm willing. I hear that all the time from these guys. I'm willing, but you don't show up for the meeting. I'm willing to do this. You haven't started your fourth step yet. I'm willing to do this. You don't do nothing. You want to talk with the boss. I was young when I got here, too. I, I know what it's about. Any opportunity is a point at which we're not allowed to pass. A level of pain will not endure. And then one day it's got to start to work. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I've been very fortunate. I've done some great things in my time. I think the greatest thing I've done in Alcoholics Anonymous in, in my time was that some of us put our homes up as collateral to purchase Dr. Bob's home. I'm the last one left of that bunch. The other one died a year ago and his wife just passed away last week. And we bought that home and restored it. It's now a national landmark. And a lot of these people from Louisville have been there. Well, that's, I'm proud of that because no one would take the opportunity to take a gamble on investing their home on something that probably was not going to work. The people in Akron didn't believe it was going to work. But we had the faith that we had something. The last place in the world where you can go where A started. Akron, Ohio, Dr. Bob's home. And are we glad that Dr. Bob and Bill met? Dr. Bob had been a member of the Oxford group for three years. And he prayed. He could pray that Bible inside or not, but he never got sober. Until one day a guy took him down to the Oxford group in Denver, Colorado. He was from Firestone Company. They owned the Cyberlene Tire Company. They were all interrelated. And they took him there and he heard Frank Buckman talk and he got sober, his son. So in 33, he brought the, first, the Oxford group to Akron, Ohio. And that's how they started that group at Henrietta Cyberlene's home. And T.W. Williams' home. Because they wanted something. And he knew that his son got sober, so it would work. And his son, Don Dance, became president of the Firestone Rubber Company at one time. But you know, this is not a coincidence that Alcoholics Anonymous become so phenomenal. It's because people still love Alcoholics Anonymous. And if you don't love it, you don't really want to stay here. Because it's a two-sided love affair. It's like loving a mistress on the side and your wife. You're torn between the two. There's no more fun. There's no more giggles in that bottle. If you drink enough. And I continued on and my wife died and, and I never got married again. So, if 
Και του δώσκαν να βάνε στο σιχλίτσα καμαδερούμου. Να μόνοι κίνοι, άρα μόνοι δεν θα είναι μόνοι. So I had to quarrel my whole gun. But you know what? It's been a great life. I haven't found it necessary to take a drink for any reason. I've had a lot of bad luck. I've had some good luck. But if you don't have any bad luck at all, you have no luck at all, you know, sometimes. And everything has not been easy. I've started the Sister Ignatia group right after Sister Ignatia passed away, and it's now 37 years old pretty soon. And uh, it's been going strong. Some of these people have been here. Some of your speakers have spoke to me at the Sister Ignatia banquet. We get 500 people at the banquet. And uh, people say, why do you want to go pay your speaker? No, you come because of the festivities. Why do you want to go to the circus? You want to see the clowns. A is like the circus, you know. You got the pie flyers. You got the drunk people in the middle in the cages. And then you got the clowns. And we got clowns following all of I'll tell you something about that. There's a, I don't know if your kids ever see these things, but it talks about one day the little boy sitting home and he's, there's a sign, a billboard, the circus is coming to town. So he said, Mom, can I have a quarter to go see the circus? That's when they park them out of the town and they take the elephants and everything through the town with the calliopes sort of bring the attention to the circus. And the mother gave the boy a quarter to go there. And the boy watches the parade go by and he's watching the calliopes, the clowns and the horses and the elephants and all the lions in the cage. And he goes up to the tent and at the end of the parade there's a couple of clowns. And the boy said, where do I put this money into? He said, here, he tips his hat and he put it in the kid's hat. And the kid ran home and tells his mother, Mom, I saw the circus. So the kid gets home and the mother looks at the clock. She said, my God, the circus didn't even start yet. She said, Johnny, where'd you see? He said, I watched him go right into that big tent. And she said, Johnny, next year when the circus comes, you go into the big tent and see the real circus. And I invite you into the big tent of Alcoholics Anonymous. We are the biggest tent in the world. You can find the clowns, you can find the high flyers, you can find the ones that drag along and clean the dung from the elephants, too. You got them all. But Alcoholics Anonymous is wonderful. I met some of the most wonderful people in my life in Alcoholics Anonymous. I've, uh, I know that uh, when I met Sister Ignatia, I just met a giant, and I'm still proud of her. I pray for her every night, and I thank God, and I prayed for her this morning. Thank you. She helped me through this thing. I, I know that it, Alcoholics Anonymous works. I met some of the giants in AA. I really did. They were alive when I got here. There was one guy whose story was in the big book, Professor in the Paradox. His name was Jack Parr. John Parr, rather, excuse me. And he said something that's very phenomenal. They took his story out of the book so they could put that Dr. Attic alcoholic in, you know, and I think it was a sin. I believe that's my opinion. I'm going to tell you an opinion now. I'm over 40 years sober, 41, see? He said you have to surrender to win. And nobody likes to surrender to win. Everything you've ever done, I think, he told us last night when he was talking about football, you don't surrender to win. You stand there and you get beat up to whatever you want to do. But don't surrender. We are never taught to surrender to win. We're taught to hang in there and give that macho all the get go. And he said, when you throw up your hands like that, you give it to God, you surrender. And I watched Jack surrender when I was in the army. And they had their arms up in the air. They surrender. You got to watch they don't turn around. They don't turn your back. But if they surrender, they're okay. And then you said, you, and that's in the face of all obstacles, you have to give up. And they said, you got to give it away to keep it. Where else do we give it away to keep it? I did that in the beauty business when I went on the West Coast, long before I knew about it. 
And you've got to give away alcoholics and harms to keep it, if it not this no, not perpetuate itself. And today we're doing that again. And you've got to suffer to get well. Why would you want to come here if you haven't suffered a little bit? Why would you not want to ease the pain? Why do you go to a dentist to ease the pain? You don't want to suffer no more. If you don't want to suffer no more for alcohol, you surrender. And you've got to die to be born again, to live. And I believe that. This is a whole new life. You're living another new life. My past life was with alcohol. It was bad. And this is a brand new life for us. a spiritual life. And this is a spiritual program. It's not a religious program. And I believe that from the bottom of my heart. I'm a Catholic, but I, I go to church on Sunday. But I got a couple of buddies that they used to stand up. And these, a lot of these people from Louisville know him because he traveled with me for 10 years, a couple of them. They say, once a Catholic, always a Catholic. I'll die a Catholic. Well, you know what happened? He met a girl. He's now a Baptist. <laughs> and he don't go to many meetings, you know. But they can't say too much because he had 10 years. And, you know, and there's a difference. My son, when son came back, I got my children back in 1973. And one came up back and he suffered from paranoid schizophrenia. Didn't know what was wrong with him. I called him Monsignor that I knew. He said, take him down to St. Vincent's Hospital. And when he evaluated him, they put him in. They said he had paranoid schizophrenia. And they gave him shock treatments and that, and he just was, for until 1988, that boy suffered. And he said, Dad, he said, this is a disease of the living dead, and if any of you have children that have paranoid schizophrenia, please bear with them, because there is hope today. But there was none at that time. And they kept giving him these pills and everything made him shake and shiver and that. And finally, he said, Dad, I don't want to live. And he, he cut himself with knives and that. And what happened, he said, I didn't know what to do. I thank God for Alcoholics Anonymous because those people I sponsored, helped sponsor me, stayed by me. And finally one day the new drug came out from Europe and they said, we can try this drug out, but you're going to have to sign for it because if he gets worse and becomes an animal like he was when we first got him, you're responsible and you can't sue us, the doctors, because we're going to use it as a voluntary drug. I want to tell you this, everybody in this room today believes in God. Everybody here believes in him. How many of you really trust him? Think about that when you go to bed tonight. How many of you really trust them? I was sober a long time when I spoke at conferences around the country. And I said, I would tell you how much I trusted God. And my, I went to see a priest who was a friend of Father Falls in Tiffin, Ohio. And I told him, Father Atkins, I said, I don't know what to tell you. I said, but I'm having a tough time with this decision. And he looked me straight in the eye and he said, Don, he said, I want to tell you something. You've been talking about trusting God for the past 10 years that I know you. He said, why don't you put your money where your mouth is? Man, he put me right in my place. I went back to Cleveland and signed those papers. I'm going to tell you, today my son is doing well. He's not the best, but he's a far cry than he was before. All because I trusted God. And today he's doing very well. If I can live five or ten more years longer, he'll be able to take care of himself completely without any help. But you know, that's all because I trusted God. And I still trust God. Uh, not too long ago, I almost had it. I fell off a podium while I was speaking in Gulf Shores. And I thought that was the end of that. But you know, I wasn't ready to go. I wasn't ready. And then it's got so many things. That, and we got basic instincts. Our basic instincts are sex, security, and social society. And that's our basic instincts in life. We all want to be happy. You know, and, and then we talk about something we don't have or hear much about is shame. Shame is what we do to ourselves, and guilt is the amends we have to make for somebody else for what we did to them. And that's what's happening. And when you do that inventory, you can get rid of a lot of that shame and guilt. 
And the book says we turn our will and our lives over to the care of God. Our will is our thinking. Our lives are our actions. And it's not that difficult of a program. And it just gets better and better the longer you stay here. i got to tell you this, that I never thought I'd live to see the day that I would have to do, say this in front of people, but I always thought the line of progression was when you're, you die first and then your family comes after you. And two years ago, in ni- April of 19, 2000, I made plans to take my son to Europe and go back to Italy. I wanted to show him where we had lived and my father lived and I lived there for two years during the Depression. And uh, he called me up one day in April, sometime in the middle of April, and he said, Dad, he said, it's all over with. He said, he's crying, he's screaming. He said, I don't know why God did this to me. He gave me, gave me three months to live. And I said, John, Donald, what's the problem? He said, the doctor said I got tumor on the brain that looks cancerous and they gave me three months to live and I just got paralyzed on my left side. And I said, Donald, just take it easy. I'll catch a plane. So I caught the plane out to Atlanta and I went there. And I thank God for people like Dick Anderson and those guys that took me around and drove me up to Tucker, Texas, where he lived. Tucker, Atlanta. And they would take me there. And this boy was really paralyzed on one side. And you know, one day I was there and there with him and he's crawling to the bathroom. And I tried to help him up and he said, Dad, don't take away the last bit of dignity I have. Let me try to get to the bathroom alone. And then I thought quickly, how many times I crawled from my bedroom into the bathroom to throw up. And my wife and my kids watched me do that. I lost my dignity, see. So I had to let him have his dignity. And that went on and on, and seven months later he's still alive. And, and I, uh, I don't know what I'm doing. I take him back to Cleveland. I cancel all the trip to Italy. I take him back to Cleveland to say goodbye to my family. And, you know, we were there for three hours, and he went to lay down to sleep because we were sleep- staying at my sister's house because they had a bedroom with no stairs to get to. And he's screaming so loud the neighbors called the police. And he couldn't get out. So I finally didn't know what to do. I called Continental Airlines and told them that what had happened. I got a return ticket, but he's not returning until Sunday or Monday. And they said, well, he's going to plane, going to be landing there, drop some people off. If you get him to the airport, we'll pick him up on the run on the... On the on the tarmac out there. So we got him out to the airport and in the meantime I called a friend of mine, his conference speaker from Chicago, a big man, and I said, we're going to have to put him in hospice, Frank. He said, well, he's going to go to Naples where his mother lives. He said, so I, he said, I'll make sure there's a hospice bed they can take him. So we got him on the plane and he got to, first got to Atlanta and from Atlanta he changed the plane and went to Naples and uh, they got him into hospice there and they called me up and it was Thanksgiving weekend. And you know, if you travel a lot on Thanksgiving, it's difficult to get a plane. So the only way I can get a plane was all standby. I'd go to Newark, New Jersey, and then come back and fly to Chicago, and then from Chicago, someplace else, all standby. And by the time that happened, I talked to him on the telephone. My wife made me talk to him. And I said, Donald, you know, you're going home to God now. He said, you've accepted God. And he accepted God because of that serenity prayer, the long form. I gave him to that and he lost all that bitterness. And at the time he was dying, he accepted God. He accepted this was his life. And I said, Donald, I said, let go. Go on your way because you're going to meet my father and my mother up there, your grandmothers. And I said, and I'll be up there very shortly, Donald, so save a place for me. I said, go on and let God, you go with God because this is the normal procedure of life. I said, I loved you and loved you all my life. And he said, I know that. He said, I want to thank you for letting me stay in jail in Valdesta, Georgia, when I was smoking marijuana in that pipe. He said, because I may have still been smoking it now, but had not let me stay in jail. 
It was difficult to let him stay in jail. My son passed away. By the time I passed away, they'd call me and said he passed away. Don't even bother trying to get a flight. So, you know, how do you accept your son dying? It's a hole in your heart. It's like just ripping your guts out. And when somebody says, I can understand it, no, you don't understand until you lost a son. We can lose a mother and father. That's a normal procedure in life. But when you lose a son, it's like chopping a finger off. Every time you pick up a fork, you see the finger is gone. It's a constant thought. And one day it becomes a fond memory because I never mistreated that boy. Never mistreated him. And I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful I never, my mother and father never saw me in my throes of alcohol. But you know, I'm grateful also that I got that boy that has paranoid schizophrenic living with me and he's doing well. And if you're to thank me, thank, think what I want to tell you about Alcoholics Anonymous is that when the world began, we had a time limit and when we're going to depart. And there's a pamphlet called The Member's Eye View. And a guy, Ray O'Keefe, said that in 1975. He quoted that pamphlet, and I've used it ever since. He talks about John the Baptist's language and heritage privilege. It comes out of the Bible of Matthew. And he said, he says, go find my cousin Jesus and see if he's, in, if he's the Messiah, because I want to get out of prison. So they go there looking for Jesus, and he's down by the river talking in parables. I'm paraphrasing this now. And he said they're talking by the rivers, and he sees them talking, and he said, are you Jesus? He said, you tell him just what you've seen and what you've heard. And tell them through the longest day and the darkest night, good news is being spread throughout the world of Jerusalem. So there comes a man laying on a cot. He said, take your cot and drag it into the river. And when you walk out, have to let your legs soak, you walk. And the man dragged that cot into the river, and he came out and he walked. And you know why he walked? Because he took an action. Action is the magic word in Alcoholics Anonymous. And then a the blind man, they told him to put mud on his eyes, and he put the mud on his eyes, and he washed it off, and he walked. So... Because he took an action. Action is magical and alcoholics anonymous. And the lepers didn't want to go into the water because it would burn them. And they said, they, they took, finally they all went in and they were all cleansed. And they were all grateful. And everybody was grateful except one. He came back and had gratitude and helped God. There's a direct correlation with that today. Everybody's coming in today, a hundred thousand a year or more coming in, but how many have gratitude and stay here to help keep this program moving? What part do you play in it? Think about it. You know, I, I'm just going to say that, and if you ask me today what I've seen in over 41 years of sobriety, I've seen the lame walk, I've seen the blind see, I've seen the sick get well, and through the longest day and the darkest night, I've seen the good news being carried the only way, the only way will ever be carried, one drunk to another. I want to thank you for having me. We're good. We don't close with the large prayer, do we? Okay.